You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Our scripture reading today is from Romans 1 and 2. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse. You, who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Amen. Amen, and welcome today to Mosaic. My name is Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new and we're continuing on in our look at the book of Romans, our series is called The Gospel is for Everyone. And I'll imagine that someone in here, maybe most of you right about now, are trying to connect the question you just heard in the video to the passage you just heard read on the stage. The question was, where can I find some good news And then you heard all of that read to you. So if you're struggling in a way like I was, let me try to help you and connect it to you. Why do we ask this question, where can I find, where can we find some good news? Well, I asked that question, I think you asked the question, because of what we see when we look out in the world. I think we ask the question because of what we read when we read the news. I asked that question... I think we ask that question because of what do we experience in our own lives. We ask the question because there's so much bad news, there's so many scandals, so many lies told by leaders, so much death, so much injustice. And then, then you come to this book, uh, the book of Romans that's supposed to be all about the gospel. The word itself literally means good news. You come to the book about the gospel and then you read and you hear about what looks like bad news. What's up with that? Where's the good news in all this bad news? Well, to answer that, I think we should see first what Paul, the writer here, Paul's his first century writer of this. He's a church planner. We should see first what he's not doing here. Paul is not picking on people as he calls out this list of sins. He's not singling out one group of people. Later on, he says, I myself, Paul is the chief of sinners. He's like the leader of all the sinners. He's not singling one group out, nor is he hating on humanity. This, after all, is the same person who wrote 1 Corinthians 13, all about the love of God and the ways we love one another. So he's not picking on people. He's not hating on humanity, nor is he just on a rant. He's not ranting here. This is not Paul unglued. 
just angry and grouchy, you know, grouchy Paul, you know, Paul unplugged, he's not hiding behind his first century, like computer scroll thing, trying to hack the Roman church's Twitter account and just troll them for all the ways that they're not living right or something like that. So he's not picking on people. He's not hating on humanity. He's not on a rant. So what is Paul doing? Well, I don't know if you remember, if you recall the tragic tsunami that hit the coast of Japan in 2011 or the earthquake that hit Haiti in 2010, or I'm sure we all remember Hurricane Harvey in Houston a couple of summers ago. Uh, In all those places, cities, uh, infrastructure was turned to rubble, loss of life was catastrophic, and I had friends who were involved uh, in all three rebuilding efforts uh, along the way. And in all those places, uh, when you ask them what they saw, When you ask them what they experienced and witnessed, they all begin to do the same thing. They all describe the mess they saw. They all describe the brokenness, the the disaster in striking and emotional, unforgettable terms. They all shake their heads and they look down to what they had witnessed when they think about it. In other words, when you ask them to describe what they see, what they saw when they looked out at the world... They would do the same thing that Paul is doing right here when he is asked to describe what he sees when he looks out at the world. My friends all begin to lament. They all begin to lament. They, 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 all, they all lament the state of the world. And that's what Paul is doing right here. Romans 1 through 3 is Paul's lament for the state of the world. It's his blues inflicted, tear stained lament. For the brokenness of humanity. Paul is walking through the rubble of the human heart. He's he's tracing a path, sort of tiptoeing through the minefield of the human soul. He's describing what he sees. So today, I'd like for us to do with Paul what Paul is doing with us. I'd like for us today to simply be here and lament the state of the world, the brokenness of it. Why? Well, Ecclesiastes, some of you may know that book. Ecclesiastes, it's been called the truest book ever written. Thank you, Herman Melville, author of Moby Dick. He says, Ecclesiastes is the truest book ever written. You know what it says? It says this. It says that the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The writer is saying that if you go to a funeral every once in a while, you just may learn something new. And you just may find something unexpected like this. You may just find what this Haitian woman back in that earthquake, a Haitian woman named Enna Zizi found in the middle of all that rubble there in Haiti. Enna Zizi was 70 years old when she was buried in the rubble for six days on a mound of rubble three stories high. And when they pulled her out, they found her unbelievably dehydrated, broken hip, broken leg. But then when they found her, Enna Zizi began to do something unexpected. And as easy began to sing. She began to sing. Her body was worn. Her heart was heavy. But she still sang. She found her song in the rubble. She found her song in the rubble. And that's my hope for us today. That as we walk with Paul in the midst of brokenness. As we lament this. We can still find our song in the rubble as well. So I'm going to do two things today as we walk with Paul. First, I want to look inside his lament. And then find the love and the lament. We're going to look inside it and then find the love in it. Let's begin. Let's take a look inside 
Paul's lament? What is he lamenting? What is he sorrowful for? Well, three things in particular. Let's look at them in order as we go. First of all, Paul is lamenting, number one, that human beings suppress the truth. Human beings suppress the truth. Let's back up to where Paul's lament begins. Chapter 1, verse 18. He begins this way. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness, wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So right away, Paul's arguing, he's saying, deep down, every human being, every person knows that God exists, and here's why he laments, because if this is true, then what could be worse than trying to get away from God who made us by using the mind he gave us to try to get away from him? A British philosopher uh, named Anthony Flew, maybe you've heard of him. Uh, he was for years the world's most famous, famous atheist, sort of self-described that way, you know. But uh, he was a British thinker and writer, and he did everything he could for decades to try to undo any claim of God, any claim of morality on people's lives. And the quote you're about to read was very typical of him during his decades of atheism and writing. And here's what he said for a while, anyway. He said, until and unless some such grounds are produced... For believing in God, we have literally no reason at all for believing. And in that situation, the only reasonable posture must be that of either the negative atheist or the agnostic. So the onus of proof has to rest on the proposition of theism. Basically saying, you got to prove it to me. And he's saying there's literally no reason at all for believing in God, which means if you don't believe in God, you're reasonable, which makes then us, if you're a believer in God, that makes you what now? unreasonable right maybe even stupid that's the inference but then seemingly out of nowhere flew dramatically reversed his position and became one of the stupid and unreasonable people and he wrote a book about it called there is a god how the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind and these are the reasons that he gives he says quote science spotlights three dimensions of nature that point to god the first is the fact that nature obeys laws right? Nature's organized. The second is the dimension of life of intelligently organized purpose-driven beings. That's human beings who are, are, can think, which arose from matter. The third is the very existence of nature, but it is not science alone that has guided me. I have also been helped, he says, by a renewed study of the classical philosophical arguments. So he's saying, I don't know if you caught it, there are two things that convinced him because of these, these are the same two things that Paul says can convince it, uh, people that we all have access to. First, uh, Flute talks about what Paul calls God's eternal power. He says he can see because creation exists, nature exists, it obeys laws, human beings are intelligent. He can see that God exists through his eternal power. Oh, but it wasn't just God's eternal power that got through to flu. It was also what Paul calls God's divine nature. That is, he is loving. He is relational. He created relational beings that he himself could know and love them and wants us to know him. And then what Flew calls the classical philosophical arguments, it's just fancy philosophers speak for. I finally got it. <laughs> I finally got it that God loves me. And months before he died, he wrote this. He says, quote, we have all the evidence we need in our immediate experience. And only a deliberate refusal to look is responsible 
for atheism of any variety. At the bottom of it, Flew agrees with Paul. The reason atheism exists is because people just want God to go away. We don't want to look for him, let alone look at him. And Paul says, that's a reason to lament. If there really is a God who knows us and loves us and wants to know and love him back, the fact that we push that down, we suppress that in spite of the evidence, that's worth lamenting. So number one, Paul laments, we suppress the truth about God. Oh, that leads though directly now to number two. Paul laments the omnipresence of idols in the world. Here's how this goes. He begins uh, this uh, listing of idols in chapter one. And at first you can read about him. He gives this list and it's all about idols of the hand. Things we do with our actions or our bodies. But then he transitions and begin listing. He begins to list idols of the heart. Idols of the heart. Greed. Uh, disobeying our, our, honoring our parents, pride, gossip, deception, this list, you can read it. It goes on and on and on. You think, well, Paul, why in the world is your list so long? Here's why. A few years ago, I was on a walk in my neighborhood with uh, one of my, my children. We were walking past a neighbor's house and my child noticed a statue in our neighbor's yard as foreign God out in our, our neighbor's household and, and the front. And it, my child sort of quietly whispered to me, So as not to go past the front door, I suppose. Daddy, yes, that person has an idol. I said, I can see that. What I should have said was, you have no idea. And I wouldn't have meant that just about the outside of their house, but about the inside of their heart and my heart and your heart and our hearts. Why is that? Here's why. It's because an idol is anything that you give your allegiance to, you put your trust in, or receive your significance from more than God. Say it again. An idol is anything you give your allegiance to, put your trust in, or receive your significance from more than God. And Paul is saying here, you're going to give your worship to something. You're going to give your allegiance first to something. You're going to get your significance from something. And you can see this when he laments what people do with the deepest part of who they are. He says, we exchange, we trade the worship of God for the worship of some fallen, broken, small idol. And by the way, if you question this, if you say, does every person really worship here? Oh yeah, man, just take like intro to anthropology. First two weeks, you'll see every single culture that's ever existed, which existed for centuries apart, uh, isolated from other people groups, when finally they were discovered, encountered, or interacted with some other people group. Every single one of them was always discovered to have worshipped something from since for forever. Every human being has worship, will worship. Let me ask you, do you think that just because we live in some, you know, postmodern world of technology, travel, and information... That the human being has somehow magically transformed into something it's never been. Listen, we still eat food. We still drink water. We still desire love and relationships. We're still the same creatures, just with shinier stuff. And you better believe human beings still worship. And Paul says that's what happens when you ignore God, when you push him away. He says you exchange worship, you trade worship. We're like, remember, we're like some dumb NBA franchise that trades away Michael Jordan for Morgan Stevens, right? We exchange the incomparable for reasons that are incomprehensible. 
This can happen with anything. Paul says an idol can be, quote, every kind of wickedness. Politics, money, sex, power, tech. Uh, Your kids' sports activities, the approval of others. Listen, whatever you worship down deep drives your emotions, your actions and choices up top. An idol can be anything and anything can be an idol. And Paul is lamenting this. But most of all, perhaps worst of all, Paul laments the worst thing that that an idol can become, which is this. He's going to show us. We can even make an idol out of God Almighty himself. He laments, number three now, the failure of religion. And here, Romans 2, one one single and solitary masterstroke. Paul is about to slay every human being in his audience and anyone who would ever read this in the future. He writes, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge one another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Oh, he's saying what you too sang years ago. He's saying the worst things in the world are justified by belief. Why? Think about, think about, who's he writing to here? First of all, he's writing to a church not dissimilar from ours. It was filled in his day with both Gentile converts coming out of the Roman Empire and Jewish converts to Christianity. And while the Gentile converts had come out of these lives of paganism, overt idol worship, dark sexual practice, the Jewish converts had not, by contrast. They had only ever had the temple, the Torah, the law of God. And yet Paul is saying to them now, Romans 2, 1, to the group that had never worshipped Hermes or Zeus a day in their lives, he's saying you are doing the same things that your Gentile counterparts are. But how can that be? Oh, not because of some idol of the hand, but because of some idol of the heart. They were making and worshiping an idol out of something which was, in this case, their own moral performance, their own obedience to the law. You can read on in chapter 2, he goes on. In other words, they weren't idolatrous because of their badness. It's just mind-blowing. They were idolatrous because of their goodness, what the Bible teacher John Gerstner calls our damnable good works. And if I didn't have you before, maybe you're back now. All right. Paul is saying, when you condemn that idolater, the pagan for their idolatry, even though you may not be committing the same sin on the surface as they are, it's all the same at the core. You are, he says, obeying the law, not to please God, but to please yourself. And you can tell this is true. He says, because you sit in church and you look down your nose at the person next to you because they're not as good as you are. In other words, he's saying, you are using God as a moral prop. Moral prop. And out of everything, I think this is what Paul is lamenting the most. Now, why is this true? Why is this happening? Here's why. It's because, you ready? I think there is hardly anyone who really and truly worships the one true God. I think there's hardly anyone who worships really and truly the one true God. You say, I'm not sure about that. Let me try to prove it to you. Growing up, there was this famous atheist I used to hear about. Maybe you heard about her too. Her name was Madeline Murray O'Hara. She was from right here in Austin. And there was this famous TV interview with her where she was debating back and forth with this interviewer. And she was saying basically that she thinks that most people don't believe in God. They just sort of pretend to. And the interviewer's getting exasperated with her. They're going back and forth. And finally, he stops and he does what all good Americans do when they want to prove something scientifically. He took an audience poll. 
He took a poll. And he said, oh, come on. No one, you guys don't really believe her. We all, we all people believe in God. Come on. How many of you in here, by a show of hands, believe in God? And almost everybody raised their hands. And he turned to her and said, I rest my case. But you know, I think Madeline Murray O'Hare missed her moment to prove her point mine which is this i think she should have done this i think she should have said all right fair enough tv guy i'd like to take a second poll ready audience audience how many of you believe not in a god somewhere but in the literal god of the bible the god who comes down with smoke and lightning and thunder and terror on top of mount sinai and says don't touch it or you'll die the God who says, I'm going to afflict you, Joe, allow Satan to afflict you. Uh, I'm not by no means going to clear the guilty. The God who puts his own people into exile. Who believes in that God? By a show of hands. And I bet a lot of hands would have gone down. And she could have said, I rest my case. Why? Because most people don't believe in the God of the Bible. Most people believe in the God of their own making. They either believe in a God who just loves everyone and condemns no one, never ever. Or they just believe in a God who condemns everyone. And the way you get to his good graces is by the way you get the mercy is by obeying better than those people. Either way, hear me, that kind of God, here's why it's idolatry. Because you control it. Either way, if God is only merely a God of love, he just accepts everybody, no questions asked, and he turns a blind eye to sin. He's the God of meet the parents, Ben Stiller. He's a good and accommodating God. That's who God is. You control him. He fits in conveniently, hand in glove, into your personalized lifestyle. But on the other hand, if God is a fundamentally condemning God, then you can control him by being good and being better than those people. And religion and church now become a spiritual push-up contest where only the strong survive. Either way, that's not the God of the Bible. I'm okay, you're okay, is not the message of Romans 1 and 2. But neither is, I'm okay, and you're really not okay. The message of Romans 1 and 2 is this. You see when Paul culminates on the pinnacle of Romans 3 when he laments, he pulls, he grounds it in the laments of the Psalms and he quotes them and he says, there is none good. No, not one. Not the bad people and not the good people. See, in a way, Paul's just drawing here on Jesus' most beloved parable. Luke 15, the parable of the two sons. Remember that one? Come on, you do. It had the younger son. He didn't really love the father. He just wanted the father's stuff, the father's money, the father's inheritance. And he goes and he squanders it on wild living, sex with prostitutes. Oh, but the older son was as bad, if not worse. He didn't want the father either. Wanted the father's stuff. He did his duty, stayed in the house, not because he wanted to be around dad because he wanted daddy's stuff, daddy's possessions. And in the end, there was a dramatic reversal of positions. The son who strayed now comes inside. But the son who stayed now goes outside. Left outside the father's home. The son who strayed is now in. The son who stayed is now out. What's the point? What did they both need? Oh, they both needed what the younger son saw and what Paul shows us here which is this. In the end, Paul shows us the love and the lament. The love and the lament. What do I mean right here? Look at verse three. Paul writes, so when you, a mere human being, by the way, because you're not God, you do remember this, right? 
pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Oh, he's saying the fact that you're still alive. You're still breathing air and have not faced the wrath and judgment of God for what you deserve is a fact that God's heart towards you is fundamentally patient, fundamentally kind, fundamentally merciful. He's like a good parent. He's slow to get upset. He's not easily angered. His heart toward us is one of kindness. Why? Not so we would stay the same, but that so we would repent like the younger son in the parable. Now you're saying, well, I don't know about that word. Morgan, repent. That's like the word that the angry street preachers put on the signs down on 6th Street, right? To get, to get under my skin and get a reaction. But listen, it's more than that. Did you know that word repent? That's actually the first word that Jesus Christ, the most loving person who's ever lived, that's the first word he used in his first message to the world in Mark chapter 1. He shows up, comes on the scene and says, hello world. Repent. For the kingdom of God is near. What does it mean to repent? This means to literally to turn around, change your mind, change your ways, turn your back on the way you were going, serving self, go towards Jesus. See, when Jesus later, when he sends his disciples out in Luke to preach, he says, go preach repentance. The day of Pentecost, first day the church ever opens its doors. Uh, Peter preaches. Uh, He says, listen, uh, to make it in, to come in, you've got to repent first. Why? Why is repentance such a big deal? To Peter, to Paul, to Jesus, can't you see? I've been trying to show us for half an hour now. It's because human beings don't come okay as they are. People need to repent because they need to repent. We lie. We kill, we cheat, we murder, we lift up our own race, we put others down, we condemn others for their sexual sin while we abuse our own in some way. We talk bad about other people, leaders somehow. You say, well, how would repentance fix all of that? Here's how. When Jesus gives another of his parables, Luke chapter 13, he compares repentance directly to one thing. He compares repentance to fruit. To fruit. Now, why is this? Why would Jesus compare fruit to repentance and repentance to fruit? Here's why. It's because of what every kid knows. If you've got kids, you know this. Kids don't want to eat what? Vegetables. Tastes kind of funny. Smell kind of sour. Most kids, my kids, want to eat fruit. Why? Because fruit tastes sweet. Fruit tastes good. Grapes are sweet. Strawberries are sweet. Pineapple. Come on. It's like the candy of God's creation. Bananas, however, should be wiped out with a plague and never to return. Just kidding. I've actually been waiting years to preach that. But I don't like bananas. Fruit is sweet. Why would repentance, turning it from self, be the same? Let me ask you. What if? What if when a friend challenges you, what if you're being challenged right now instead of being defensive? Instead of justifying yourself, instead of suppressing the truth, you turned away from all that, turned away from justifying yourself. You just said, I'm sorry. How would that taste to your friend or the person challenging you? What if when your spouse misunderstands you, maybe your boss blames you for something, wasn't maybe entirely your fault, your parents don't listen to you? What if instead of responding with anger or rage, you simply took a moment and you repented to them. What if you took responsibility for like even the 1% that was maybe possibly your fault? You said, I'm sorry for how this came across to you. I love you. I don't ever want you to feel unloved. Please forgive me. How would that taste to them? 
What if political enemies approached each other in our culture and said, I'm sorry for intentionally misrepresenting your position and using that to gain an advantage over you, primarily for fundraising purposes, if we were really honest. I'm sorry for producing commercials that intentionally paint you in a one-dimensional light while I insist you see me in a three-dimensional light. I want to hear the heart of what you're saying and work for the common good. How would that taste to us? What if the majority culture of America could say to all its minorities, we're sorry for the racism that's been perpetrated against you for centuries, people by people like us. How would that taste? What if the church could say to the LBGTQ community, we're sorry for putting signs up to curse you, call you names. How would that taste to them? And what if you could say right now to God Almighty, I'm sorry for the way I have treated you, suppressed you, pushed you away. How would that taste? I think it would taste, come on, what? Sweet. And that's why when Martin Luther, the author, the writer, the, the guy who sparked the Protestant Reformation, when he wrote his 95 theses, do you know what he put first? The first thing he said, why we should follow God? He says this, it's because all of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. Do you know what he's saying? You know what this means? It means, therefore, all of life can be sweet. All of life can be sweet. It means every tree in the garden of your life can be sweet. It can be filled with the fruit of repentance. It means something good can grow in every hard place. Hear me. It's not the niceness of people that leaves you unchanged. That's not what you need. You need the kindness of God that leads you to repentance, to grow, and so that you can bear fruit even on every barren tree. In March of 2000, a few years ago, there was horrendous flooding that hit the nation of Mozambique. It's in Southeast Africa. It wiped out homes. Many people lost their lives. The waters didn't go down for days. It was literally a sea of death. And one woman, true story, her name was Miss Pedro. Miss Pedro climbed up in a tree to escape. And during that, while she was up in the tree, many of her relatives, including her own grandmother, died. And three days later, while she was still up in that tree, something incredible and unexpected happened. Miss Pedro gave birth to a baby girl and they both lived. You see, life was born in the midst of death on a tree as the brokenness of the world washed past. And do you know that's exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ is? That Jesus Christ came into the world not because we were okay, but because we weren't. And he climbed up and he hung on a tree as the brokenness of humanity surrounded him and washed past him and overcame him and overtook him. Only unlike that woman, he died. He didn't go up on the tree to be saved. He went up there so you and I, we could be saved. Up on that tree as the brokenness of the world washed past. He gave his life. And three days later, new life came into the world. Church, when you see that loving kindness towards you, when you know that he loves you like that, what does it make you want to do? I know what it makes me want to do. It makes me want to repent. It makes you want to repent and change and grow and stop being a part of the brokenness of the world and start healing it instead, instead of judging it. And then today, in a sense, if you'll climb up and you'll identify with Jesus on that tree, you say to him, you were my safety in the storm. You're my refuge in the brokenness of the world. My money can't save me. My sexuality can't save me. My, my, my family can't save me. My work, my career can't save me. They'll all go away at the end, but you'll never fail me, Jesus. Forsake me. You too can find 
your song in the rubble. Find your song in the rubble today. And that's my hope and heart for you, church, as we have this moment. We approach Almighty God that we would find that his loving kindness draws us even to repent today. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.